לשידור ישיר ממחנה רמה בברקשיירס. Confront 
this challenge, whether it's an external or internal challenge, it can't be met with, with reflection and thought or even words that aren't really words. Um, it's violence. By the way, this week, this year I read, thanks to my bar mitzvah boy this week, Benji Solomon, let's um, hear it for Safaria. Uh, the Rush Bam on this verse says, who's the angel? God says the, sends the angel to Yaakov because Yaakov, after having brought his spouses and his children across the river, made to run away. He went to run away. And the angel gets sent by God to keep him there, to force him to stand and fight. I thought this was just brilliant. I never heard that before. Well, it does pick up on, on, on you know, one of the emotional you know, charges of the story, which is, I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to encounter this. I don't want to confront this. And, and, you know, I, I know you meant this, Yaakov, Yabok, and Yeavik. And Yeavik, the wrestling. The wrestling. Yeah, exactly. Yaakov, these, uh, that gorgeous set of, of puns or, or, or plays well, on it's words. It's interesting here. because the pun, it really works beautifully. Yabok is Yud Bet Kuf. Yaakov is with an I in the silent letter. And Yeavik is with an Aleph, another silent letter. It's as if they're, linguistically, they seem to all three be the same thing. Yeah. So, okay. I want to pick up on something Jeremy said. When you were talking, Jeremy, about the familial, I kept hearing familiar. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until the last time that I finally actually heard what you said. But it led me to think that the family is what's familiar. And I imagine Jacob is coming back. He thinks he's changed. But he does not think Esau has changed. And that's why he's nervous. Fascinating. And... What makes it so striking for me is that what we see in the description is clearly Esau has changed, right? He comes, even though he has a large army, he's friendly, he's gracious. And Jacob seems very much the same Jacob as when he left. Well, he's not the same. And and here, just go back, rewind five seconds, because he gets, va, it says, <laughs> he gets injured. And here, back to the theme of violence, there. There is a moment of violence. It's, it's, I guess it's a low blow. It's a thigh blow. It's a, it's a Charlie horse. Well, no, I think, I think you had it the right the first time. I, I think, I think it's, it's like simnayad chatachat yurechi. Okay, I think it's euphemistic. I think it's the, it's the man zone basically there. So again, so we have this battle. It's clear what Jacob is fighting for because he says at the very end. He wants a blessing. But what was the angel, or however you want to describe him, what was he fighting for? And that really is the answer that Rashbam provides, which was new to me, but actually makes a great deal of sense. And that would be why they're fighting. Which is force him to confront. Force him to confront. Right? That he can't run away. So then, yeah, the fact fact of the injury, we talked about this a little bit before we started recording, the, um, you know, that sort of one has to be wounded to be whole. And ultimately he's going to say, and Jacob shows up whole, but, but he's wounded. And if you're going to uh, confront this in the fullest sense, it's not peaceful. Um, maybe it's inner struggle or inner strife, but it's not, you know, Zen and peaceful. It's agonizing. It's a fight. So the meaning of the two, Vayishakehu, and the, that word is famously dotted in the Torah and, and gives rise to some lovely midrashim that 
seem to really well they're violent violence, violence that that Esav reaches in to bite him to really try and kill him but but we are very conciliatory to to Esav in in our little parsha tank here by the way you know i, I went to go look three very men I, 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 in preparation for this, I went to go look at the passage in Breshi Rabbah about the biting. Yes. Um, and the, there are two teachings there. Shimon ben Alazar says it's dotted to show how much Esav, how much Esav uh, loved his brother. Okay. And the other guy, and Rabbi Yanai comes along and says, uh, it's dotted to say he tried to bite him. Um, the first one says, Melamed shenichmeru rachamav b'cholibo. The first one, Shimon ben Alazar says, he, he just his heart melted and he just kissed him with love. And Rabbi Yanai says he's trying to bite him. <laughs> yeah, isn't that the truth though? <laughs> and you can't tell the difference. Well, that 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 there's look, there's there's a little in the in there's a little bit of violence there. A little bit. There may be a lot. There may be, you know, that is is it ever one way or the other? I guess there's there's the Torah wants us to see a little bit of ambiguity here. That that this 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 relationship may not be totally resolved, but but I don't you know, know you know what we should do we should you know we should refer to this the scene in Godfather Part Two yes in when Cuba is falling and Michael and Fredo are in New Year's Eve in Havana and Michael kisses Fredo on the mouth and and says to him I know it was you Fredo you broke my heart and on one hand it's the kiss of death and he will ultimately kill kill Fredo but. But it's, he's also his brother, and it's because he broke his heart. It's because he loved him and broke his heart that the betrayal was so bad. Yeah. So maybe, maybe this is a little bit. Maybe Asa is a little bit like Michael Corleone. I love you, and I'm so enraged and violent towards you. I'm going to quote you in my parsha sheet. Okay, all right. Let's <laughs> so, so Yaakov comes after this this event, and you quoted it before. Yaakov Shalem, Ir Shem. He comes to the city of Shem in this whole state and he's kind of broken but he's whole there's 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 been this cathartic meeting with all the ambivalence and ambiguity that we can muster in, in interpreting this and that's probably also what makes him whole and then and then jeremy things just go off the rails this is the most difficult story in brashit okay i'm nominating that i'll go with that top too. three <laughs> go ahead so here, what goes on after this? Dina goes out among a totally ambiguous or crazy phrase to see the, the women, the girls of the land. And a certain Shem ben Chamor takes a liking to her. He falls in love with her at first sight. And it's a little bit, um, it goes very, very uh, crazy, violent. Vaishkav. He rapes her, basically, ravishes her. Um, and if we then fast forward, what do the children of Israel do? And these are our ancestors. Jeremy Kalmanos. Well, Barry, Barry, I had the first try. Barry, Barry, you go ahead, Barry. Well, I, I thank you for the great honor, Jeremy. Um, you're always more eloquent in these matters than I am. <laughs> so I, I think the brothers want to become diplomats. And, you know, Shechem persuades his father, who I guess is an ass, that... Um, <laughs> Come on. 
Explain the joke. Yeah. <laughs> that word, he was worried for donkey. Um, that he loves Dina and he wants to marry her and he has to do everything he can so that he could get her as a wife. And so they arrange a deal, which seems on the surface to be reasonable. They want to enter into a pact, a breed, as it were, a covenant. And so the men of Shechem, which is also the area where Shechem ben Hamor lives, will agree to be circumcised so that they can become like the Israelites, the Bnei Israel. And then they will be able to take the women of Jacob's family as wives, and Jacob's sons and grandsons presumably will be able to take the local women as their wives. Which is, but let me just put parentheses. It's a fascinating, you know, it, it, it really is totally from the male masculine. We will marry, we will, give, we will intermarry. Your daughters you will give to us. And our daughters will give to, to them. So there's no intermarriage of males. It's only females, right? It is, there seems to be a whole cadre of women who are going to cross over the boundaries, right? And they don't... They it does don't... seem like, yes, it does seem like what happens in an intermarriage is that the woman, you know, unlike the fact that later Judaism will have Judaism in Jewish identity pass matrilineally, Right. Uh, it does seem like the 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 just the facts on the ground in a biblical story is that when a woman from clan A or, or ethnic identity A goes to marry a man of ethnic identity B, she becomes him. It's not the other way around. And you know what the most ironic thing is, or one of them is, is that in Breshit, when we have the 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 union of a man and a woman, it says Al Yazov Ish a man will leave his father and mother and join with his wife and become one flesh. And so, and, and, yes, that's true. And, and furthermore, by the way, when Devarim was going to prohibit idol worship, it's worried that the Jew, the Israelite, will marry the non-Jewish, and he will be called to her family's sacrifice. There you go. There so you it's go. Co- it's complicated. Here. It's so complicated. So Barry, continue. And so they they create. This- so they agree. They think that they have a nice deal. Um, Shechem and Chamor and company. And on the third day, which is the most painful day. They circumcised them, you forgot to mention. Oh, yes. On the third day after the circumcision, Shimon and Levi come in for a twisted kind of Bikur Cholim, visiting the sick, and kill all the males. And Jacob is quite put out. How could you do such a thing? It will ruin my reputation. And Shimon and Levi say... You can't treat our daughter like a whore. Is that how they're going to treat our daughter? A terrible uh, uh, abomination was done in Israel. So Uh, it would seem, on the surface at least, that Shimon and Levi defend the family honor. And Jacob is interested in Hasmara, public relations. So... it's uh, a very disturbing story. There's no way to uh, dress it up any other way, I think. Well, you know, I, I remember years ago, years, when I studied at Pardes, um, you know, Pardes, as our listeners know, is a, or might know, is a, is a kind of a, a liberal yeshiva co-ed, and it's very Anglo, and uh, 
in, in, in Jerusalem and um, has had a big effect on, I think, you know, the, the Anglos of South Jerusalem for many years, since the 1980s. And I was there in the early 90s and we we're studying this story. And um, it was just really interesting because I think most of the Americans were horrified at the cruelty and deception. And some of the, yes, they were Anglo-Israelis, but they were Israelis. Um, who obviously have a different set of experiences um, resonated much more to the claim of Shimon and Levi that there are certain things that you can't let stand. There are certain kinds of abuse for which you need to take vengeance. And, you know, uh, I do find it, it's partly like how you deal with all this Torah stories about the, the cleverness and deception, how the, how, the, how the clever Israelites trick somebody into... An, an ambush or an attack or whatever. So this like maybe is the story of the clever Levi and Shimon who don't let an abuse stand. They have to teach somebody a lesson. Otherwise it's going to happen all the time. So this is a, a kind of a war story for a bad neighborhood. And I think one of the things that separates the Anglo Americans from the Anglo Israelis is that the Israelis all go into the military service. And they do not live in Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. Most of us in America, anti-Semitism notwithstanding, this is Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. And we can't really imagine, most of us, for most of our lives, how violence could ever be a solution to a problem that we have. But and the, we would like religion to align with the point you just made. I think that we would like, you know... Shalom is so deeply layered into a Jewish value, not just for us Americans, but certainly for us Americans. We would like religion to say, you know, this is a this is a God is a God of love. This is a religion of peace. You know, at the worst, you say, you know, violence is is the last resort. I think a story like this, complicated as it is, because both Jacob gets to say you are destroying not just our reputation, but our ability to have good relationships with our neighbors. It gives Jacob that voice and it gives Shimon and Levi the voice of saying, don't be a sucker. You're going to get your ass, you're going to get your, your butt whipped if you don't fight back. So the Torah, it gives us both of these perspectives. There, on the one hand, I, I think the Torah wants us to feel a certain set, you know, the pathos uh, that Jacob's response is somewhat pathetic. Um, and and impotent, um, and that even even his diplomacy is is his attempt at diplomacy is going to be a, a failure. So, here, I think the, we come back to the comment that Jeremy made about Jacob's injury. Yeah, he it's a kind of injury of impotence, and then the very next story, then he demonstrates how injured he actually is. Indeed. The other piece of it that I think we've touched on at various times throughout these shows is it also illustrates how little parents can protect their children. It's that so interesting. Yeah, go ahead. There's an element of luck that we often do not take into account. But bad things can happen to our children, and we have to find a way to deal with that, both for our children and for ourselves. And God knows it's not easy. You know, that, that that brings to mind another theme in, in, in the modern discourse over this story, which is it's 
it's totally not focused on the victim at all. The, I mean, Dina, you know, is is really a, a very passive figure in this whole story. Um, I would say I would say she's she's a, it's a marginal figure, not you know, and I'm not saying that we, we should think of her as marginal, but I think that the Torah does think um, that you know, like okay, she something happened to her. Uh, doesn't give us a ton of detail about it, but it certainly does not. And as most most modern, certainly, you know, women readers of this story will say, well, wh what is she thinking? You know, because Shem's behavior is described somewhat ambiguously. First of all, he sleeps with her and and yeah, humbles her, seem, seemingly like a rape. And then it says, uh, uh, he speaks to her heart. Uh, and and that is a phrase, you know, like Dabru Alev Yerushalayim is what Isaiah does to comfort the broken Jerusalem, speak to the heart of Jerusalem. Alev he, he's he speaks to her heart. That's a phrase which in most contexts in the Hebrew Bible seems like a nice thing. Right. So, well, I think Jeremy, if I might interject, we would expect the preposition to be L, not Al. Also means about that it's a, an expression of indirectness as well as directness that I think we have to reckon with. Okay, that's that's totally possible. It's totally possible. But what I think what I think is, and so that that would go in a different direction than what I just said. But it is totally possible in this story that well, it's certainly true that we do not know what her reaction is. Um, it might be thoroughly traumatized and negative. It might be reconciled. We don't know. We don't know. Well, here, I think it's important to add, you know, we were talking before how this is a story where people could say things that they might later regret. And I think that the Dina is not the focus of the story. The story that you're describing is imagining Dina as a victim is an important story, but it's not the Torah story. You know, Dina is a kind of a catalyst. She's like Isaac at the Akedah. And she's like Job's family that gets destroyed, you know, for a, a silly wager between God and Satan that they're necessary for the drama of the story to unfold, but we're not supposed to think about them as real people because that's too painful. No, but, but, but obviously she is, and, and, and you know, the Torah is, is focusing us away from, from her re realness to the other realness that's going on here, which is the, the big, you know, the, the political problem that they will have in living uh, together and defining themselves as a nation uh, in in the land, given God's promise and given the covenant that exists with them, and that and that that that's just not even going to be a starter. It's a non-starter with them, which is, but but the violence that they perpetrate, the massacre of of Shem, uh, has to linger on somehow. As 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 our, the thesis is that all violent acts do linger on somewhere in the violent perpetrator and in the Locale. Uh, so we we know they're living in a land of seven nations, and what will become a land of seven nations. And you know, you read a story like this, and taking it on a political level, how would you ever trust these people again if you lived there? And the response of the Torah is to annihilate the citizens of the land. Right? The Torah doesn't say make peace with the Girgashim and the Chivim, etc. It says wipe them out. And I think in this sort of perhaps twisted way, it provides a justification 
for the military policy of the nation of Judah and Israel to destroy the inhabitants so that they can make peace in their own land. But they, ne but they never succeeded in accomplishing this. They, the, 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 the war with the Canaanites persists throughout biblical history. And, and, and I mean, here it would be, it's way beyond the scope of, of this, of, of our talk here, but, but it's, you know, to what extent do they succeed in, in annihilating all of them? And to what extent does even the attempt linger on? And to what extent, of course, does our rabbinic tradition try to correct uh, the violent impulses here? I, I think, you know, we, we are repulsed by this story. We, we, uh, on the other hand, we're also repulsed by by the fact that this could happen, and that and that an innocent woman is so treated by um, by by these people, and 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 we don't want to have anything to do with them. That that's I, I don't know if we can ever reconcile this. That's why we're, we're left in this. And and it, I, for the sake of going on, the the for the rest of the parsha, it doesn't get better for Jacob. Can I can I throw in the um, can I throw in the thing we talked about before before we started recording the you know we talked about uh, before we started recording at the very end of the book of Genesis uh, Jacob on his deathbed gives a a blessing to the tribes some of which is quite critical especially to Shimon and Levi and in which he takes a dig Jacob takes a dig at their cruelty um, in this episode and you know in the main in rabbinic uh, in biblical tradition, you know, neither of those tribes has a real land stake. Shimon um, evidently is is, uh, is 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 like a they, they they don't really get their own land. They they're put into Judah. Levi is does they don't get the land. They are national servants. They're religious national servants. And I was reminded of a rule in Judaism um, that that the the priestly blessing. Um, cannot be said or should not be said by somebody who has ever killed an, another person. The Talmud says that if your hands, the, the, that the gesture of prayer is lifting your hands and, and giving the birkat akonim, the priestly blessing, is called nisiat kapayim, lifting the hands. And if your hands have, if you have blood on your hands, you can't lift your hands in prayer. I, I was in the course of our talking. I just, I just, uh, you know, called up here on my on my computer the paragraph in the Shulchan Aruch about this fact. Um, you know, Elliot said, does it leave an effect um, on, does, a, does a, a, a homicide leave an effect on the person? Does violence leave an effect on the perpetrator? The tribe of Levi supposed to be an instrument of peace, but they have been an instrument of this very cruel violence. So here's the rule, uh, as it appears in the Shulchan Aruch, quoted from the Talmud, Kohen sheharagat nefesh afilu bishogeg lo yisayet kapav, afilu asachuba. A Kohen who killed some other person, even by accident, should not recite Birat Konim, even if they made tshuva. That's the Shulchan Aruch's rule in the words of Yosef Karo, who, as our listeners probably know, was a, a Spanish Jew living in the land of Israel, um, exiled from Spain in 1492, uh, living in the eastern Mediterranean and then Israel. Rav Moshe Isulis, the Polish rabbi, who, who is the sort of second co-author of the Shulchan Aruch, adds... Um, he dissents a little bit and says, well, uh, if, if a person has done shuva, they can recite Birkat and we should do that to encourage penitence. 
Um, and that's the way we practice here in Ashkenaz. So I think that's pretty interesting. You have the one Sephardic tradition that's really quite strict. Death, you know, causing death, homicide, violence, and a blessing of peace, incompatible. Incompatible. You can't do it. And the, the Ashkenazi authority says, we, we got to try to bring, the, we got to try to open the door and bring people back in. It's I want to add something else here, that Shechem, there is a lingering effect of the story, but it's not in our Parsha. And, you know, one of the things that I think I've mentioned before, maybe mostly to myself, I guess, is that we, we do ourselves something of a disservice sometimes because we tend to read the Torah in a very localized fashion. You know, we go Parsha to Parsha, a few chapters, say, each week, and so we often forget what's comes next and what, where we've been. But in um, next week in Vayeshev, the brothers are going to be pastoring in Shechem, and that's where Joseph is going to go at first. So they have taken over the place that they destroyed, in a sense, because that's their pastor land now. And it's going to set into motion the violence of the Joseph story which we can dress it up any way you want. And, you know, the Pharaoh, of course, in any case, will dress up Joseph. But it's a, a very violent story as well. Also, they want to kill him. All right, speaking of, speaking of sad outcomes, uh, for, for Jacob, this, this story is very sad. Uh, we, he, he does get a blessing. He does get his name, uh, a new name, Yisrael, in a, in a in rather elaborate uh, vision or, or appearance of God. And then um, we understand and read that first Rivka, sorry, the Dvorah Meneket Rivka, there's an, one death that occurs, the, the nurse of Rebecca, which is the closest link that Jacob has to his mother, she dies. And then um, we learn that as they're making their way to Hebron, uh, Rachel dies. Um, and this she dies in childbirth. It says, She's ma- they're making their way to Ephrata on the way to Hebron. She goes into birth and she has terrible difficulty in birth. As she is dying, the midwife says, Don't worry, you have given birth to a son. And as she lets out the last breath, basically, she calls him Ben-Oni, which could be understood as either son of my strength, my last strength, or son of my anguish. And Yaakov calls him Benjamin. She is buried there. And that is Keva Rachel up until this day. And, and the, the Torah is silent here with Jacob uh, after her death. And I... I I don't know if you want to give some reflection to that or, or just um, think about, about, you know, where the arc of this life, you know, and, and how this, this, this moment of tragic bereavement will affect his life and the life of the family uh, going on. And, and um, I don't know, Jeremy, maybe you see more, more of this uh, in the pastoral life of the rabbi uh, and, and, and how, you know, tragedy uh, unfolds in a family and, and how all the unstated things that are here underneath the verse, um, they're there. They're just, they're, they're impenetrable, but, but they're going to, I mean, we're, we're, we're teeing up next week. You're going to see, you're going to see the echoes of this. Don't you think? Oh, it, totally. It, as you said, you're, we're teeing up next week. Um, 
we are teeing up the fact that, I mean, I, d- I did the wrestling story with um, some teens yesterday, and it was interesting to me. These are wonderful teens, some of whom went to, not all of them, some of whom went to Jewish day school through like elementary or middle school, uh, others did not. And, and, they're, and they're still going kids. And they just asked me a bunch of questions, like narrative questions, shot questions about the story. And it was interesting to me what they, what they knew correctly, what they didn't know correctly. And one kid said, well, Jacob has two favorite sons, right? And I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, there's both Joseph and Benjamin. And I said, How come? And, and they didn't sort of know that it was because Rachel is the mother of the two favorite sons. Um, so we're teeing up the fact that, and, and, and what does she say when Joseph is finally born? First of all, Asaf et Cherpati, it's, it's the Joseph because the, the shame rolled away, but then Yosef li ben Acher, God will give me another child. So we got Joseph and Benjamin um, as the beloved, beloved, beloved of Jacob because they are Rachel's child, children. <clears throat> but of course, a parent is going to feel, you know, a combination of a great deal of ambivalence towards Benjamin. He he is is partly, I mean, not through his own decision, of course, or whatever, but he's associated with or responsible for the death of his mother. No, the, the, the Jacob is responsible for the death of the mother. Well, because because you're talking about the 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 the, the curse from last week. Well, not only that, but but it's like. You know, I, 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 she was my wife. I, I, I actually got her in this state. It's my fault. There, I, I read Jacob here as it's unresolved. The guilt. That if that's had. the case, Elliot, I think yeah. it, it would have, you would have had a stronger case, I think, for Jacob than leaving the name. But he renames Benjamin, and Benjamin becomes Jacob's right hand, as it were. And I'm reminded of the scene after Stonewall Jackson was killed by his own troops and lingered for a while before he died. And Lee said he lost his right hand. And the pathos in two weeks, when we get to Mikates, of Joseph, of, of Jacob first losing Joseph and then thinking he's going to lose his right hand is practically devastating. You know, so when with the death of Rachel, it altered, the sons become much more important because they're all he has left of his beloved wife. And and I, I I'm not I don't I don't want to disagree with you I think that that another way to interpret it is is that that Benjamin of course represents all the guilt that Jacob has and Yamin you know has lots of layers of meaning to it it's also south you know and and it's the son of the south you know and and by giving him that kind of name. Which could be a geographical name, and it's it neuters the pathos of the moment of his death. I don't think that that he is he, he is trying to remove the anguish that he has to carry with his whole, with himself the rest of his life by giving him something that's not related to the actual death. I you know it's it's, yeah, it's, it's nice it's, interpretation it's, too. Maybe a very, no, conflict. I mean, um, perhaps back to the original wrestling story. You know, perhaps we're inclined to think that with the most important problems of our lives, you know, we are we are heady folks. Uh, we're American Jews are you know typically hyper educated and and heady and verbal and you know we might think that that we can talk our way, reason our way, psychotherapeutic 
completely reflect our way to our problems and, and deal with them. And all that is, of course, partly true. And conflict, deep conflict, painful, sometimes injuring, um, sometimes involving like actual physical violence, or in the final story of the, the narrative of this parasha, when Reuven attempts to assert his own power by sleeping with Jacob's wife, itself a kind of sexual violence. And we don't, as we don't know what Dina's re reaction is, we don't know what Bilha's reaction is. Um, we, we're not told that, that Bilha always thought Reuven was kind of cute or that Reuven, you know, uh, unleashed actual physical violence against her. We don't know any of those things, but that's also a kind of assault. And there's just real conflict. It's not going away. Okay, so we got to end the, this our conversation, and I'm I'm trying to find like the a little bit of comfort here. The uh, Kings of Edom. Okay, Isn't that so the last before, chapter. Before before we get to the Kings of Edom, we got Yitzchak's death. Okay, which is sad, but this is the moment. This is the moment where Yaakov comes. Yaakov, Yavo Yaakov El Yitzchak Aviv. So there is a kind of foreshadowing of a reencounter of father and son. After many, many years of estrangement, they're together at Kiryat Arba. And then the very next pasuk in verse uh, 35, 25, He's 180 years old. And so there is a, a kind of moment in the death of Yitzchak, which brings together these two strands of the family, the Jacob's and the Esav, and their 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 patriarch has gone, and and that, like the death of Abraham, where Yishmael and Yitzhak are together, indicates to us that there's possibility of reconciliation here. I think is that is that would you put that thumbs up, like thumbs up on that? I like it. I think I think that that's absolutely true. I mean, with Yishmael and Yitzhak. One of them won and one of them lost. One of them, you know, was, was centered and one of them was marginalized. And similarly here too. But Asaph seems to, like, like Barry said at the beginning of our conversation, which I think is exactly, exactly right. Jacob, Jacob comes back thinking that Asaph hasn't changed in 20 years, but he has. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So the other but, thing to note here is that Abraham is buried by his two most prominent sons. Yes. Isaac is buried by all of his sons. And Jacob will be buried by all of his sons who are in the covenant. And so there's a progression of tightening of the family bond as we move through the generations. Beautiful. A fascinating note by which we conclude our Parsha talk. We want to thank you all for watching and listening to us. We're looking forward to more great Parsha conversations. In the meantime, for my buddies... Rabbi Jeremy Kamalowski, Rabbi Barry Chesler, Shalom and Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom.
93 FM, 